good afternoon. Thank you for coming out. I'm Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton. I'm uh, really standing in today uh, for Professor Robert George, who had very much uh, wanted uh, to be here uh, for this, this event, for this lecture. Uh, he has uh, fallen ill, so uh, while he's recovering, the honors. It's my uh, good fortune then to introduce to you the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Dr. Bruce Cole. Uh, I've known uh, Bruce Cole for quite a while now. Uh, if memory serves, uh, we first met uh, on a very snowy weekend uh, in Wellesley. Uh, in fact, we were snowed in for a couple of days. Uh, uh, had, had lots of time to have a conversation, and uh, I just the, one of the things I remember is my asking uh, then Professor Cole what uh, if he'd read any books on the academic life that he might recommend, and uh, he's, he recommended David Lodge. So I, I went off and read David Lodge books for a while and benefited from it. Uh, well, Dr. Cole is, uh, as many of you know, a scholar of Renaissance art. Uh, he is the eighth chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. He came to the endowment in 2001 from Indiana University in Bloomington, where he was distinguished professor of art history and professor of comparative literature. As NEH chairman, uh, Dr. Cole has launched uh, a very important initiative titled We the People, which encourages the teaching, study, and understanding of American history and culture. I believe it's the prerogative of each chairman of the NEH to uh, launch a particular initiative during his or her tenure. And uh, Professor Cole uh, uh, wisely, I think, chose this We the People initiative. Uh, it includes an annual Heroes of History lecture, the Idea of America essay contest for high school students, and a program to distribute classic children's books to libraries and schools across the country. Under Dr. Cole's leadership, the NEH budget has dramatically increased for research preservation. There are many important documentary history projects uh, that that provide uh, essential, uh, that, that receive essential support from the NEH, education and public programs on American history and culture. The endowment has also been able to award more grants for the study of other cultures and other times. Dr. Cole's relationship with the endowment goes back to 1971 when he received a fellowship uh, to do research on early Florentine painting. He also served as a panelist in NEH's peer review system. And in 1992, he was named by President uh, George H.W. Bush to the National Council on the Humanities, which is NEH's 26-member advisory board. He served for seven years. And after being nominated by President uh, uh, George W. Bush to serve as chairman, his appointment uh, was unanimously approved by the United States Senate in September 2001. President Bush recently renominated uh, Dr. Cole to serve a second term as chairman of the NEH. Uh, Dr. Cole has written 14 books, uh, many of them about the Renaissance. Among his works are the Renaissance Artist at Work, Sienese Painting in the Age of the Renaissance, Italian art, 1250 to 1550, the relation of art to life and society, uh, the art of the Western world from ancient Greece to postmodernism. His most recent book is The Informed Eye, Understanding Masterpieces of Western Art. <laughs> Dr. Cole was born in Ohio, attended Case Western Reserve University. He earned his master's degree from Oberlin and his doctorate in 1969 from Bryn Mawr College. For two years, he was the William E. Suida Fellow. Uh, I cannot pronounce this, I'm sure, at the, at the Kunsthistorische Institute in Florence. 
He has held fellowships and grants from Guggenheim Foundation, American Council of Learned Societies, Crest Foundation, American Philosophical Society, Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at the University of California, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. He and his wife, Doreen, live in the District of Columbia and have two grown children. This lecture this evening is the first of our annual series of lectures on America's founding and future. We began this series in 2002 and invite speakers to examine the American founding, fundamental principles of American democracy, and their application to current social, political, legal, and cultural issues. Past speakers have included William Crystal, Harry Jaffa, Chris DeMuth, and Nelson Lund. I welcome Dr. Cole for being here. Thank you. Well, uh, good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Uh, yeah, indeed, uh, Brad is an old buddy of mine. And I had forgotten about being snowbound, but I also remember there was an excellent restaurant there that we took advantage of. Uh, and thanks for those uh, kind words of introduction. Uh, it's always a pleasure to visit James Madison's alma mater. But it's uh, really a particular pleasure to speak under the auspices of this remarkable program. Uh, the James Madison program fosters a unique environment in which scholarship, teaching, and intellectual exchange flourish. Uh, as we uh, know, many institutions of higher education have not been so attentive to their duty to cultivate knowledge of American ideals and institutions. Sub such subjects are too often ignored or worse, but here Princeton, to the immense credit of this university and Professor Robbie George and people like Brad Wilson, things are indeed different. In a short five-year span, you have shown you have earned the right to carry on in James Madison's name. And uh, I had a very interesting James Madison experience on Constitution Day. Uh, the NEH awarded this uh, Center for the Study of the Constitution at Mount Pillar, a million-dollar challenge grant. and. Uh, I traveled down to uh, make that award on Constitu last Constitution Day. Um, and uh, that was a very stirring uh, ceremony. And uh, um, there was also a James Madison impersonator, or interpreter, I should say. And I had my doubts about such people, but he was really remarkable. And I've been urging Brad to bring him up here so you can all, you can all hear him. Extremely scholarly, very articulate, and never got out of character, which was a little unnerving. Um, um, now, uh, before I pr proceed, I'd, I'd like to say that my sister-in-law, Marilyn Magner, is here. Marilyn, where are you? Did you want to properly embarrass her? Uh, she's a good sister-in-law, and uh, she lives in Lawrenceville. And I'd like to also recognize a member of my staff, Andrew Hazlitt, uh, who was my advisor and uh, NAH's White House uh, liaison. And Andrew has been at the endowment just a little after I came, so almost four years, and he's just done a terrific job. So thank you, Andrew. It's really nice to be back in Princeton. I lived here for a year when I was finishing my PhD at uh, Bryn Mawr. And uh, we lived, I remember, in a little house in Ewing Street, just a little larger than a matchbox. And uh, when I was finishing my dissertation, dissertation, I was also teaching at Rutgers. And uh, getting back on uh, Route 1, coming up from Trenton, was a very familiar uh, site uh, or, or ideal, as I remember it. Uh, that was a really great year. I remember that the Rutgers um, paid me twice a month. Uh, and I don't think we've ever felt so rich. And those people who have been on the one-month university uh, uh, every paycheck once a month, university salaries know what I mean. However, I can say the federal government does pay twice a month, so I'm feeling better now. So uh, like all of you uh, gathered here today, I'm, I'm a passionate devotee of history and other subjects within the humanities and the liberal arts. And we uh, have been blessed with the opportunity and the time to become immersed in subjects like political theory or literature, or philosophy or history, 
and uh, religion and art history. And, and I think everyone in this room knows well the private joys and personal growth that comes from a deep acquaintance with the humanities. The humanities, I believe, lead us to live the good and the examined life. But uh, the humanities are not. They're not only a means to wisdom and fulfillment on the personal sphere. They're, they're not, by any means, a private luxury. They are, they are a necessity to citizenship and crucial to the well-being of our nation. The humanities are essential to the good life, not to ju just one's individual life, but just as importantly to our civic life for the citizen as well as the scholar. Today I'd like to talk about this fundamental link between the humanities and democracy, how our national well-being is tied to our shared memory of the past and our common ideals. Now, as chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, my duty is to make the wisdom of the humanities available uh, to Americans at universities like this one, yes, but also to citizens all across the country uh, in every state and in every uh, city. Um, I believe the endowment, I strongly believe that the endowment receives federal appropriation, that is your taxpayers' dollars, to give our citizens the tools needed for effective participation in our democracy. And uh, as you may know, we uh, not only have the NEH in Washington, but we have 56 state and territorial humanities councils, which disseminate the humanities on a, on a grassroots level uh, to every corner of every state. Now, the humanities are the study of what makes us human, the legacy of our past, the ideals and principles that motivate us, the eternal questions that we all ponder. The classics and archaeology show us from whence our civilization came. The study of literature and art shape our sense of beauty. Knowledge of philosophy and religion give meaning to our concept of justice and goodness. Four decades ago, the NEH was founded in the belief that cultivating the best of the humanities had real, tangible benefits for civic life. And I, I just like to say that the week before last, we celebrated our 40th anniversary on September 29th, the day that Lyndon Johnson signed the legislation creating the NEH and the NEA. We had a gala celebration at the National Gallery um, and reflected on the tremendous achievements the NEH uh, has made in the last 40 years, how it's deeply influenced the culture of this country. And we also celebrated uh, some of our new initiatives, which I'll talk about. And it was, a, it was really a marvelous a marvelous uh, uh, celebration, about 500 people were there. And that founding legislation that was signed 40 years ago declares that democracy demands wisdom. America must have educated and thoughtful citizens who can fully and intelligently participate in our government of, by, and for the people. And the NEH exists to foster the wisdom and knowledge essential to our national identity. In the years of my chairmanship at the NEH, I have argued that the state of the humanities has real implications for the state of our union. The humanities help us understand the world around us, important in times of peace, but essential in a time of war. In recent years, our nation has been engaged in conflicts driven by philosophy, political ideologies, and views of history, all topics which fall squarely within the humanities. The humanities help us understand what is at stake in such conflicts, our tolerance, our principles, our wealth, and our freedoms have indeed made us targets. Indeed, the values implicit in the studies of the hum study of the humanities are part of why we were attacked on September 11. 2001, the free and fearless exchange of ideas, respect for individual conscience, 
belief in the power of education, the rule of law, tolerance. All of these things are anathema to our country's enemies. Understanding and affirming these principles are part of the battle. Today, it is especially urgent we study American institutions, ideals, and history because defending our democracy demands more, more than successful military campaigns. It also requires an understanding of the ideas and the ideals and the institutions that have shaped our country. Now, this is not, of course, a new concept. America's founders recognized the importance of informed and educated citizenry as necessary for the survival of our participatory democracy. I love, you probably all know it, Franklin's uh, statement when he was asked after signing the Constitution, um, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? Um, a monarchy or republic? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. As many speakers here at Princeton have no doubt had occasion to mention, James Madison famously said, the diffusion of knowledge is the only true guardian of liberty. Such knowledge, Lincoln's mystic cords of memory, tell us who we are as a people and why our country is worth fighting for. Such knowledge is indeed part of our homeland defense. But these values, ideas, and memories are not, not self-sustaining or inborn. Democracy is not a birthright. It must be taught and it must be learned. Our citizens must know about our founding principles, our ideas, our rights and our responsibilities, and our institution in order to understand how the past informs the present and to have a compass to the future. Free people must take responsibility for their own governance and ensure that knowledge, the knowledge that sustains democracy is transmitted down the generations. It has been said that the erosion of freedom comes from three sources, from without, from within, and from the passing of time. Though not as visible as marching armies or as menacing as corrupt leaders, the injuries of time lead to the same outcome, a surrender of American ideals. Abraham Lincoln warned of this silent artillery the fading memory of what we believe as Americans and why. And this loss of American memory has profound implications for our national security. We face a serious challenge to our country that lies within our border, even within our schools, the threat of American amnesia. Now, one of the common threads of great civilizations is the cultivation of memory. Many of the great works of antiquity are transliterated from oral traditions. From Homer to Beowulf, such tales train people to remember their history and heritage through story and song and pass those stories and songs throughout generations. Old Testament stories repeatedly depict prophets and priests encouraging people to write on their hearts the events, circumstances, and stories that made up their history. Without memory, we have no bearings. We have no past and no way to understand the present. But we are in danger of forgetting this lesson. For years, even decades, polls, tests, and studies have shown that Americans, especially our young people, do not know their history and cannot remember even the most important events of the 20th century. But of course, uh, as Americans, we're, we're forward-looking people. I think that's part of our tradition. We're often more concerned what happens tomorrow than with what happened yesterday. But we are in danger of having our view of the future obscured by our ignorance of the past. We cannot see clearly ahead if we are blind to history. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many indicators point to a worsening of our case of American amnesia. From high school students to the adult voting public, surveys, polls, and tests have revealed some alarming gaps. Even among our nation's best educated people, too many have been shortchanged by our 
education system. Now, um, many of you probably know about the NAEP study done by the Department of Education uh, just a short time ago, which showed that uh, 12th graders, when given a history test, um, failed it. 65% got below basic understanding. You can't do worse than that. That's even worse than math and science. Um, lest you think things are better in higher education, even in some elite universities, of course, I'm sure that is not the case here, uh, the Roper survey, the Roper uh, Institution surveyed the 55 elite colleges and universities, gave, high, gave college seniors a simple high school history test. 85% of them got Ds or Fs. Many of them didn't know when the Civil War was. They didn't know when Lincoln was president. They didn't know anything about the division of powers, very little about the Bill of Rights, and so on and so forth. Um, even here at Princeton, I would not be surprised if the thoughtful, well-read, and historically-minded students who participate in the James Madison program have encountered peers who demonstrate thin knowledge of the past. Now, in a democracy, collective amnesia is particularly dangerous. Citizens kept ignorant of their history, are robbed of the riches of their heritage, and handicapped not only in the ability to understand their own past and present, but they're also handicapped in their ability to understand and to appreciate other cultures. And lacking knowledge of the past, they will tend to believe even the most far-fetched, ill-intended versions of our story. If Americans cannot recall, for instance, whom we fought and whom we fought against during World War II, it should not be assumed that they will long remember the signal events of our time. 60% um, of high school uh, seniors did not know that either uh, Japan, um, Germany, or Italy was uh, a foe of the United States in the Second World War. 18% of them thought that Germany was on our side during that time. Uh, and a nation that does not know why it exists or what it stands for cannot flourish. It has been said that we cannot defend what we cannot define. And de uh, um, David McCullough is very fond of saying that um, um, planning for the future without a knowledge of the past is like trying to plant cut flowers. Uh, and I think that's very, very true. And our nation's future depends on how we meet these challenges. We all have a stake and we all have a role to play in recovering America's memory. And there are several things we can do to alleviate, to alleviate our case of American amnesia. Now this is where the National Endowment for the Humanities is answering the President's call to service with the launch of the We the People initiative. The We the People initiative, as Brad said, marks a systematic effort at the NEH to promote the study and understanding of American history and culture. Launched by the President in a Rose Garden speech in 2002, and I believe that was the first time a President has actually publicly mentioned the NEH in his speech um, in the Rose Garden, and maybe any speech since Lyndon Johnson established the agency in 1965 in a Rose Garden speech. Um, and launched by the President in this, in, in, actually in Constitution Day 2002, and supported vigorously, vigorously by both sides of the aisle in Congress, the We the People Initiative has provided support for research fellowships, grants for documentary films, museum exhibitions, collaborative research projects, seminars and institutes for teachers, and preservation efforts to safeguard and disseminate the raw material of our history. It has also uh, resulted, as Brad mentioned, in one of the biggest budget hikes in NEH history. In the last three years, after flat budgets for many, many years, our budget has increased by about $18 million. That's about a 15% increase overall. Are we the people office? This is the, this is the, uh, the uh, 
office that is responsible for overseeing and awarding We the People money has gone from zero dollars to the second largest budget line in the agency in the same three years. Now, let me just tell you about several uh, We the People projects which are now underway and then mention a few new ones. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the National Digital Newspaper Program. Uh, many, as many of you, as you probably know, over the last 20 years the, in, our, in our national newspaper program, the NEH has supported the discovery and the cataloging uh, and the microfilming of historic newspapers, about 160,000 newspapers, uh, individual titles, um, have been microfilmed, and that amount of microfilm is about 70 million pages. That is a colossal project, which has actually rescued the great first draft of our heritage. As you know, like our preservation for brittle books, many of these papers are highly acidic, and they're basically burning up. So we've supported the digitization of 70 million pages of historic newspapers. These newspapers contain um, the news before it was history. They deal with the fabric of large cities and small towns over the country, the social history, the economic history, the political history, the gossip, the editorials. They're an invaluable uh, and wonderful source. Um, and now, under the We the People initiative, the NEH has begun, in cooperation with the Library of Congress, to digitize them. And they will be available um, on the Library of Congress website. That's where the digital files will be mounted. They will be available free, and we hope forever, and they will be able, available at the click of a mouse. And what you'll see is something put up in something called optical character recognition. So you will see the whole page of the paper. It's not like LexisNexis. You'll see the headlines. You will see the lithographs or the steel engravings or the photographs. And you will be able to flip from page to page. And you will be able to keyword search it. Uh, you can imagine what it was like with microfilm. The problem with the microfilm was the enormity of the, of the material precluded, precluded really using it effectively because you have to go through reel after reel of microfilm. Now, when this is complete, you'll be able to search across the papers um, and be able to find any subject you want. Uh, and it will be a major, it will be a quantum leap not only in the availability of the raw material of our history, but also it will be um, a powerful tools that can be used by scholars or newspaper reporters or judges or, or anyone, anyone else. It's the kind of monumental project that only the endowment could undertake. Um, we also have a series of landmark uh, workshops uh, where we bring teachers together with experts at places where history was made. M much of this comes from my own experience as a kid um, visiting the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland where I came into contact with the artifacts of history, you know, a lock of Napoleon's hair, which I'm sure was fake, um, uniforms and little tableaus of uh, dioramas of life on the Western Reserve. Um, be I, because I believe that history is caught as much as it's taught. So we bring teachers, get their batteries recharged, put them in contact with experts. And you know, one of the problems about the teaching of American history is that our teachers haven't got the history education or the subject matter education that they deserve. History teachers have the fewest number of hours, the fewest number of majors, and the fewest number of minors, or any other teachers except those <coughs> in physics. And it's, so we try to improve their subject matter knowledge. This is based on the fact that you cannot really teach what you don't know. Uh, and I think this is, this is a, the teachers are enthusiastic, and this has been uh, a wonderful program, which we are now going to double in size, um, uh, we hope. Uh, we have given a number of very large challenge grants this challenge grant is a, a, a division of the endowment which gives money to be matched, usually on a three-to-one or a four-to-one basis. The challenge grant division 
since its inception has leveraged almost $2 billion out of the private and corporate uh, sector. And now we are giving large challenge grants of up to a million dollars, like the one I announced at Mount Pillar for the Center of the Study of the Constitution, to uh, centers that study uh, founding principles and the ramification of founding principles uh, throughout our history. Um, we are also intensifying our support of presidential papers. Almost from the beginning, the endowment has been sponsoring the publication of presidential papers. We are now moving into digitizing of uh, presidential papers. The endowment wants to be very much uh, up on, at the curve in digitizing. Digitizing, I could go on, maybe I'll get a question about this, is obviously going to be an expansion and, in, and an enlargement uh, and a new tool for knowledge creation in the humanities. And the endowment is very concerned with that and will be launching a number of programs and I've already supported a number of very important programs that um, I think expand the definition of the humanities, uh, allow us to interrogate uh, metadata in new ways by digitizing. Um, we're also going to launch an initiative to collect and, and um, digitize congressional papers. Presidential papers usually get all the play, but congressional papers, especially those from very important uh, members of Congress are equally important uh, in many ways, and they're scattered all over the place, uh, some of them in libraries, some of them, a few of them probably in barns, and uh, the endowment is now seriously interested in, in identifying them and cataloging them and digitizing them. Now, through these and other new programs, I believe we can make progress toward uh, restoring America's memories. And of course, the endowment can only do uh, what the endowment can do. This is a, a job that needs to also be um, undertaken in the schools. It needs to be, history needs to be taught uh, around the, the dining room table. Uh, there needs to be a concerted effort. The endowment can do its part, but there are many others that need to help us in colleges and universities and schools all over the country. But I hope the NEH is, is, is helping lead a renaissance in knowledge about our history and culture. And here at Princeton, you are also at work laying the foundation for a better understanding of our knowledge of our nation's stories and principles. I firmly believe, as said, that the humanities are essential to the proper functioning of a democracy. The human, humanities help us deal wisely with complex challenges we face, to draw from the wisdom and learn from the mistakes of the past. In short, to better understand the world around us and ourselves. But today, too many Americans, especially young people, especially our students, have been deprived of the tools of citizenship and the building blocks of the good and the examined life. Now, this is a challenge we need to meet, and this is a challenge we need to best. Our history must be preserved and it must be passed on. We cannot expect that a nation which has lost its memory will keep its vision. We cannot hope that forgetting the past will not obscure our future. The work of the scholar is essential to the life of the citizen. The lessons of history, the wisdom of the world's great thinkers, the knowledge of other lives, other times, and other cultures. These not only make us wiser, they make us safer, more secure, and more human. By celebrating the scholar, we benefit the citizen. And by cultivating the pursuit of truth and excellence, we leave a new generation with a brighter light, a broader perspective, and an enriched legacy with which to face the future. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank sure, you. sure, sure, sure. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Bruce. When uh, Dr. Cole and I were having a conversation before this lecture, uh, I said to him, you know, you're the, uh, I think you're the uh, first uncontroversial chairman of the NEH that, that I can remember. Um, and I thought back to the controversies when, 
William Bennett was chairman and then Lynn Cheney and then controversies when Sheldon Hackney and Bill Ferris was, were chairman and, and, and then Bruce Cole came along. And uh, I didn't know what to make of it. I just noted the fact. And uh, his, his, he said, yes, uh, uh, that's probably correct. He said, uh, and uh, I've done it without compromising the mission of the NEH. And uh, knowing uh, the, his cast of mind and, and the breadth and depth of his learning and the integrity of his character, I felt even more sanguine about the current work of the NEH when he said that. And I thank him for his work there. Um, I, I also would like to mention that uh, he told me that, that he had just come back from Paris where he had spent a week as a delegate to the 33rd meeting of UNESCO meeting in Paris. Uh, uh, it, that's fair game for any questions you might have as well. So let me uh, open it up for questions. And as is the tradition of the Madison program, I'd like to invite any students, graduate students, undergraduate students uh, who are in the audience to ask the first question. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, uh, actually, the NEA is now also interested in um, the understanding of American art and has a new program called American uh, Masterpieces, um, which somewhat parallels our We the People initiative. Yeah, the uh, NEA uh, supports uh, creative endeavors. They will um, support uh, a jazz group or a symphony orchestra, um, we will support the study of the history of jazz and have a lot. Uh, so ours is a more interpretive um, aspect of the arts because we do sponsor a lot of research in art history and uh, and and music history and and poetry and uh, have published uh, the papers of poets, the Whitman papers, for instance. But there's a pretty bright line between what the NEH supports, which is basically a creative endeavors, and what we support. Oh, there is some overlap. We support museum exhibitions and catalogs. They do as well. They have some preservation um, uh, endeavors, and we do as well. Uh, but we don't have any programs that are um, formally linked or uh, have this kind of synergy. Mm-hmm. You got to check with Brad. <laughs> Well, I get to ask that question a lot. Uh, uh, what we don't want is some sanitized version of American history. We want to know about the good and the bad, the margins and the center, the peaks and the valleys, and uh, to, uh, to promote some kind of history which is only positive, is to really, I think, uh, undervalue the great achievements that this country has made in uh, overcoming adversity and uh, surpassing uh, prejudice. Uh, so we want an, an inclusive history as possible. Let the chips fall where, uh, where they may. And if you look at what we funded in American history, you can see um, we have funded lots of things in uh, presidential history, but also in the history of, of slavery or the labor movement and the like. So we don't have any litmus test. We think that um, 
I have, uh, I believe this is a great country, but I believe that we've often faltered, but we've picked ourselves up and gone on. But it's very, very important to understand um, the dark sides as, as, as well as the bright sides. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that no, the, we have not done, but there, have, but there has been there have been a number of studies. But I mean, to try to get to the root cause of that is something else. I mean, my opinion is, and I think this is shared by a lot of people, is that history. I'll just stick to history now. History teachers don't know enough history anymore. Um, there are many places where you can get through ed school with a lot of knowledge of educational philosophy and. Uh, um, and pedagogy, but not know anything about the subject you're going to teach. And as I said before, you know, it's hard to teach something that you, you don't know. And uh, I, I think also there are problems in textbooks. Everybody agrees with that. The textbooks have uh, been, been watered down in, in many ways. Um, I would say that the largest issue here is just subject matter knowledge of of, of the teachers. I mean, I think there are other factors uh, as well, but that's one thing that we have identified and we definitely are addressing, but that only is not only in, in history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is this is true. Um, I mean, the, one of the problems that goes back to your story, question is that I think everybody is interested in history. I think it's our fourth dimension. We have to have history to, to function. I and mean, we, you all got here because you remembered how to do it. You got home because you remember how to do that too. So it is our fourth dimension. And if you look at the kind of um, discrepancy between what I've been talking about about the lack of knowledge of uh, of our kids. And the th real hunger for American history in our older population, our out-of-school population, as evidenced by things by 1776 by David McCullough, Ken Burns, Civil War, which we uh, supported, all the best-selling history uh, books. There's a, there, there's a real difference. And I think the reason is that to uh, make history uh, come alive, it has to be well told. It has to be a story. It has to be well written, uh, and it has to be there. There has to be some uh, reason to read it. You know, it just shouldn't be some something that puts you to sleep. And one of the problems is that I don't think uh, we're doing a good enough job telling our story in a way that engages our kids. Certainly, adults are being engaged uh, in 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 history. The only interesting thing about this. And something I would like to do something about is the authors of so many of these best-selling history books, Isaacson on Franklin, M M McCullough on Adams in 1776, uh, Ron Chernow on, on, on Hamilton, Doris Kearns Goodwin in her new book on Lincoln and Lincoln's cabinet are not really academics. They come from the world of uh, journalism. And the reason I think these books are doing so well is they're so well-written. They have great narratives. They're so compelling. Now, what are we doing about that? Well, us, yes, we are supporting the work of scholars. We are making material very widely available, like the National Digital Newspaper uh, Program, and with digitizing presidential papers. So, you know, an 11th grader can get them, a retiree can get them. 
whoever has them, uh, internet can get them. Uh, but we are also sponsoring very large film programs. We just had an award, award-winning um, television um, uh, feature on Ben Franklin, got an Emmy. Um, we are doing radio programs, museum exhibitions that reach millions and millions of people. And our state humanities councils, each of them have We the People components, which are really taking this initiative down to the grassroots in, in libraries and in schools all over the country. So it's very important not only to build this on uh, scholarly research, but also to disseminate that scholarly research in an attractive way that um, gets people who are naturally primed to think about history. Um, that's really something you have to ask my friend Alan Weinstein, who's the archivist of the United States. Um, we would not promote the publication of sensitive or classified material. Um, also, most of the material that the, the bulk of, of our scholars study, study has some age to it. It's not uh, current events. I mean, we're a government agency. We have to strictly stay within the statutes legal statutes. Um, as far as the release of presidential papers, I know that's a controversial issue, and that's really a, something that the archives is involved in, not us. What's really interesting about that is how unpolitical it is. Um, um, I've been there for four years, and I only one time have I had any political pr uh, pressure exerted on me, and that was by a congressman um, who wanted something for a constituent. But aside from that, I have had truly zero political uh, pressure uh, on any award, any policy, any initiative, um, and the like. And that might be hard for you to believe. I am a political appointee. Uh, this is a, a federal, independent federal agency. But it just, it just doesn't exist. Now, whether it exists exist in other administrations, other agencies, I don't know. I can't say. Um, but that's been one of the most surprising things. And uh, one of the things that, uh, yes, I have, you know, I was a scholar. I spent many years toiling, toiling away in the vineyards of art history and, uh, in, and the academic world. And one of the things, frankly, I was a little concerned about, or they had some experience as a national council member, was dealing with the Hill and what would happen up there. But that turns out to be one of the most enjoyable parts of my job. And it demands a different set of skill sets, uh, different skill sets, than giving a lecture in a, in a, in a college and university. Um, and uh, uh, our um, relations with Congress have been excellent. There's some wood here. Uh, our, our committee, our appropriations committee, has been uh, very, very supportive. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is that um, we've had some dear colleague letters. When there's an amendment on, on the floor, the um, dear colleagues' letters go around uh, where senators and, and uh, representatives support this particular piece of legislation or, a, uh, or a, an amendment. And two of those, we didn't even have one last time. We didn't even need it. But um, two of those um, 
Dear Colleague Letters contain the signatures of people who actually voted to either abolish or defund the endowment in years past. And I'm very proud uh, that we've, uh, we've got lots and lots of allies in Congress on both sides uh, of the aisle and have very good working relations with them. And I think one of the reasons for that is that um, uh, they now, they have faith in the NEH. They have faith that the NEH is making very high quality, significant uh, awards um, that have a real impact on, on American society. So, uh, strange as it may seem, and it may not seem credible, but I have not, except for one time, had any political pressure ever, uh, which is a, another good part of my job. <laughs> we also now have uh, a humanities caucus in the House for the first time, um, co-chaired by Congressman Leach from Iowa and uh, Congressman Price. Uh, Leach is a Republican, Congressman Price a Democrat from North Carolina. And we also have a cultural caucus now in the Senate, um, co-chaired by Senator Enzi um, and Senator Kennedy. And you cannot get a wider spread of political opinion than you have there. And this bipartisan support uh, is something that is very, very gratifying uh, to me. Yeah, our budget always comes up with our force fires, yeah. you know, which is always dangerous, and everybody's looking around for some, some money. No, how do we deal with it? We deal with it by the fact that you know, we've gotten $18 million in the last uh, three years, so it, it really hasn't been a factor. It just hasn't been a factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Uh, well, it's, this is a very interesting part of my job. I mean, when I was appointed, we weren't back in UNESCO. And so I never thought that there would be any kind of diplomatic aspect of, of my job. But now we're back in UNESCO, and we don't have a culture minister. Um, so uh, there are all these issues of culture, and culture ministers go to UNESCO as part of the delegation. So the, the, the delegation... Uh, is, is often formed by someone, the, the chairman of the NAH or chairman of the NAA or the head of the Institute for Museum and Library Services. And one of the interesting things has been interacting with um, other delegates at UNESCO. I remember when we first came and we met them and uh, who do not understand the way that the, our system works. They can understand that we don't have a culture minister. They can understand that we don't have a centralized cultural policy and that Washington doesn't set cultural policy. Um, it's still very difficult for them to understand. And I say, you know what? We don't have that, and guess what? We don't want it. Because, um, you know, people in Princeton or in Cleveland, Ohio, or I believe, or, or any place in the country, don't want Washington setting central uh, uh, cultural policy. I mean, we have a very decentralized uh, system, better, very federal system in the way that we have schools or or anything else. And um, so that's been very, very interesting. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's, I've been working on two things, mainly on a, a, a set of guidelines that UNESCO finally passed after a couple of years um, that deals with what they call trans-border accreditation and evaluation of um, higher education. In other words, with a sort of rapidly globalizing and uh, um, virtual education going on now and, uh, you know, vast migration of students and offshore campuses um, and degree mills. How do you evaluate? What, what are the standards? And so UNESCO has done a set of guidelines, which they just passed last year, uh, last week, um, which will guide people into this. And there will also be a portal established 
where all the major accreditation uh, units, uh, we don't have, a, again, a federal accrediting unit like many other countries do, um, will be available. And I think that's been a very good thing. But, you know, doing diplomacy, there are 190 countries in, in UNESCO. Uh, and and they, many of them are working at, have very different agendas. That's a very interesting a very interesting experience, and I've you know, also found that most of the work in UNESCO does not happen in the commission meetings or in the plenary section. It happens in the parties and receptions, of which there are many. The other thing that I worked on a little bit is the, um, the Treaty on Cultural Diversity, which is a very contentious issue, um, which um, deals with cultural property and uh, issues of trade and and that is now being worked on this, this week. So it's been a real fascinating um, experience. I think we'll probably do more of it um, in lieu of uh, culture ministers. The only pro I mean, I've been uh, to, um, to Sydney and to Tokyo and three times to Paris. The only problem is you don't get to enjoy these places because you're, you know, you're sitting in meetings all day. Well, first of all, that's a great question, and we are working with Alfonso Aguilar, who is, works in the Citizenship Office, and actually we've done some events. One of the things that we've, uh, I think Brad mentioned, and we have a, something called the We the People Bookshelf, where we distribute 15 books, K-12, to thousands of libraries across the country. And this year's theme is Becoming American, which is about immigration and issues of assimilation and allegiance. Um, and that's a good question because I think now, probably as much as any time in our history, um, people are coming to the United States, and I think they're very eager uh, to participate in our, in, in our country. That's why they're coming here. And there are barriers with languages and the likes and the citizenship. But how is it? How do you get to these people? How do you um, tell these people about our country? How do you tell them about the good? and the bad. How do you uh, teach them about our institutions and our separation of powers? We do some of that. We're working with the Office of Citizenship to figure out if we can do more of it. But, um, uh, you know, there because this is of, of key importance, I, what we don't want is some kind of balkanization. Um, this country, uh, I, I was in Sweden a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, I gave a talk at the Swedish Immigrants Institute, and Sweden is, and like European countries, are facing this issue, but but much bigger issue, about immigrants who are coming in, the ideas of um, separation, assimilation, and the like. Um, uh, how do you get these people to 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 buy in? And I think people that come to the United States, for the most part, really want to participate in our government, and we have to be welcome to them. We're all immigrants, you know. It's a country of immigrants, this is one of the fantastic things about the states, I think, is how well this has all worked, how people come, um, uh, they keep part of their identity, uh, but then they also become Americans, and they uh, assimilate and have, a, and, and have allegiance to this, uh, to this country. And, and uh, the Swedes wanted to know, you know, how we, how we did all that. I didn't have all the, all the answers. But that's extremely important right at this uh, critical juncture. But we have done it really, really well. And I think we have a lot, you know, not only to teach our new citizens, but to, to teach other people in other parts of the world. Okay. Thank you very much. Please note, the NEH now distributes 15 books on immigration to public libraries throughout the country and remains uncontroversial. You're not just a, a great scholar and statesman, you're a magician and a, and a hypnotist. 
<laughs> well, uh, before uh, we uh, retire to the reception upstairs, I would just like to mention that our next event uh, will be uh, the second in our America's Founders and Founding and Future series. Uh, Christine Rosen from the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington will be here on October 19th, that's Wednesday, to speak on rehabilitating eugenics. Dr. Rosen is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's the author of a very interesting book called Preaching Eugenics, Religious Leaders and the American Eugenics Movement, which is a history of the, uh, the ethical and religious debates surrounding the eugenics movement in the United States uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, her talk will be at 3.30 uh, right here in Computer Science 104. Well, uh, again, thank you very much, Dr. Cole, and uh, thank you all for coming.